Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Paul Valent, the recently named Chief Investment Officer for Rockefeller University's $2.5 billion endowment. Paula previously oversaw Bowdoin College's endowment for 20 years as it grew from $450 million to $2 billion during her tenure and generated returns at the very top of the industry. Bowdoin's Investment Committee Chair Stan Druckenmiller describes Paula as an innovative, outside-the-box thinker, an aggressive risk-taker, and a workaholic whose passion is unlike anyone he has ever seen. 
Paula is also one of my oldest friends in the business from our time crossing paths at Yale in the mid-90s. Our conversation covers Paula's unique career path from art conservation to endowment management and the transferable lessons she learned along the way. In the process, we discuss her approach at Bowdoin and plans for Rockefeller University. Please enjoy my conversation with Paula Valent. Paula, it's great to see you. And it's great to see you, too. I think the first time I met you, you were uh, just out of undergrad at Yale, and you were the hero of the Yale office. That was a long time ago. It was. (laughs) Well, I would love to start, even before we met, with your background and go all the way back to your family. My father's parents came over from Lithuania. His last name was Volengevichus, and he cut it to Volent. He had serious dyslexia, so he only went to the third grade in school. And then he and his brother started an auto body shop, and they were like 15 and 16. My father was very creative, and he was sort of an inventor. He invented a lot of things. My mom's family came from Ireland, um, Irish, and settled in Portland, Maine, which is a real connection for me and part of my family. And so I was a first-generation college student. My parents didn't really know that much about college. I applied for one school. I went to Emerson College to start. My dad wanted me to go to Katie Gibbs to learn how to type, but I didn't want to do that. So (laughs) I was a rebel during those days. I went to Emerson College, and I took this art history class with this crazy professor that would dress up as a painting every class. And he told me to, we had the assignment where we had to go to the Fog Art Museum over in Cambridge and write a paper on a work of art. And I, by mistake, got up in the conservation lab, and I was looking in, and this woman, Jerry Cohn, who's a famous paper conservator, was just about to dip a old master drawing into a bath of water. And I was looking in and she said, don't just stand there. Come on in if you're interested and close the door. And so she, like, I didn't even know people did that. There are so many serendipitous moments that you have that you have to take advantage. You know, had I not stood on that threshold, who knows, I would be a speech therapist or something. So I left Emerson. I waitressed for the summer. And then I went to University of Hampshire, a state school. And I got in-state tuition and financial aid. I studied art history and chemistry. When I graduated, I had a job offer from Brown University and Bowdoin College to work as a curatorial assistant in their college museums. And I went to Bowdoin because that's where my family was. I was a curatorial assistant working on really interesting things. But I became more and more interested in art conservation And so I got a master's degree in art history, and then I got a certificate, which is like a master's degree in chemistry as it applies to art and artifacts. And it was really interesting. I was living in New York. I lived in a loft in Soho, and this is in the days when so Dean and DeLuca had just started, and at night you would see rats running through the streets with (laughs) baguettes in their teeth. It was really fun. You know, I lived in New York at a really great time. I studied paper conservation which is conservation of works of art on paper, prints, and drawings. Doing conservation is like being a doctor. You can't really work on the work, really work of art until you've studied with a bunch of people. So it was a two-year program, and then you needed to do two years of internships. So I went to San Francisco to the Palace of the Legion of Fine Arts, and then I went to Los Angeles, the L.A. County Museum of Art, to do my internships. And I have to say I'm more of a Southern California person. 
After that, I stayed in California and lived in Los Angeles. I worked in private practice working for collectors and museums, and I worked for a lot of contemporary artists. I worked for Edward Shea, Sam Francis, you know, a lot of artists today. And we would do trades because they were broke and I was broken and they could never pay me. So that turned out to be sort of lucrative later on in life. I met my husband at the time who uh, was a prop master at film. And so then one day I was in my studio and this person came knocking on the door and they were from Yale School of Management. And for somehow they had heard about me and I was really interested in business. I was taking business classes at night because I was running a company. I was there during the Northridge earthquake and that was petrifying because I had priceless works of art in my studio and I was hoping I had enough insurance if my studio collapsed. So I had taken classes at UCLA in business at night. And so the person from Yale came and said, did you ever think of getting an MBA? And I'm like, no, I didn't. But it stuck in my head. And so I'm like, whatever, I'll take the GREs and apply. So I applied to Yale. And I only applied to Yale because they had a lot for not-for-profit. I loved working for a mission. And even when I had my own private practice, I worked for a lot of not-for-profit small museums and helping them restore their collections. Collections. I got an early admission to Yale, but at the same time, I got a really prestigious fellowship at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And it was to combine paper conservation and paintings conservation on contemporary art and also to collect artists' materials. So I told Yale I wasn't going to come, and they said, the door is always open if you change your mind. Moved to Washington, D.C., worked there for about a year and a half. The endowment didn't do very well, I think, at that time. But anyway, so my project wasn't going to go anywhere. And Tom Krenz, who was at the Guggenheim at that time, had graduated from Yale School of Management, talked to me and said, you should go. You could be a museum director. This is going to be open your head to a million things. So I went to Yale I had to take baby math. I did not know what a basis point was. And then my husband and I had been trying to get pregnant. We gave up because it wasn't happening. And I went to Yale. And of course, I was pregnant. And so I went to Yale for my first semester. And my beautiful daughter, Vanessa, was born the February after I started at Yale. That was fabulous. But then I was like, well, I want to know about endowments because I'm going to be a museum director. And what better time to learn about it than when I have this break? I took a six-month break from Yale to be with my daughter. So I knocked on the door of the old investment office, and I met with David, and I said, I want to work with you. I want to learn about endowments. And he looked at my resume, and he's like, there is nothing on here that is pertinent. But okay, (laughs) you can file. And if you remember, there were all these files in the basement. It was like a mess. So I worked part-time filing, and then little by little, David asked me to get involved in projects. And as you know, at Yale at that time, People were coming through all the time, managers. It was really interesting. And it was great. And so then when school came back, I went back to Yale, to SOM. But I worked part-time at the investment office, as you remember, all my way through school. And so then I was graduating and I got a job at Disney. And my husband and I were going to move back to California. He was going to do prop mastering. And David said, oh, could you stay a couple more weeks because I want to write this book. So he asked me to stay. The book ended up taking like 18 months and I ended up staying at Yale, which was a fabulous experience. 
we were involved in issuing debt. We were traveling around to emerging markets and working on all different things. Yale was sort of a pioneer in going into alternative asset classes. So I was there. And then I got approached by Ellen Schumann, who worked with us. And she mentioned that Bowdoin didn't have anyone watching the endowment and they were thinking about it. So I interviewed with the different people and I took a job at Bowdoin. I took a pay cut from Yale and I came in as associate treasurer and I reported to the treasurer and I wasn't even invited to the investment committee meetings because I was sort of doing the work behind the curtain. Amazingly, Stanley Druckenmiller was the chair of the committee at that time. He had just left Soros and was doing Duquesne. And he has been such an instrumental person in my life. He's like such a wonderful person. But he kept asking, where's Paula? And so I got pulled into the committee and was given more responsibility. So take me back to your time at Yale and going to Bowdoin. What were the formative lessons you took from what you learned from David into that seat at Bowdoin? Well, first of all, I think that the Yale model, quote unquote, is not a recipe that can be transferred. It's different for every organization. So it's more the key tenets of thinking about long-term investing rather than a recipe. You can't bring it. So when I went to Bowdoin, the first thing I did, well, I took a year to get to know the risk profile of the college, which was very different than Yale. So understanding sort of your clients, who is your board of trustees, as well as your president is a really integral part of it. But from David, I think you learned in some ways that managers, they were very talented managers that you could access. Also, in some of the cases in some asset classes, for instance, venture capital, unless you had access to the very best managers, it wasn't worth doing at all. And one of the things that I learned at Bowdoin through David's impact was figure out where your competitive edges are. So for instance, at Bowdoin, since we had Stan Druckenmiller and a really great alumni in the global macro world, we added that. And when I first got there, David would look over my shoulder and say, no one can anticipate interest rates. You should get rid of these investments in global macro. However, those have been a signature part of Bowdoin's portfolio. Another thing is no question is too silly. David loved teaching, as you know. I remember once I asked him what basis risk was and everybody looked at me and he thought that was great, he told me. And so I hate it when you're in an investment meeting and someone's using this esoteric acronym and no one raises their hand and asks, what does that mean? You know, Because they're afraid to look silly. But that was something that I learned. And also I learned sort of a passion and a love of investing. I'm a liberal arts graduate and David would have us read books like The Beak of the Finch. So that had nothing to do with investments. And also listening in to different pitches by managers and then discussing it as a team and the pros and the cons. And also being interested in what the mission of the institution was. At Bowdoin, I carried that forward. I was one of the people that started the internship program at Yale, and I carried that forward to Bowdoin, and I loved working with young students. Interesting, when I left Bowdoin my last day, I got a bound book of thank you notes from like 50 interns and where they were and like everywhere from doing emerging markets research for Goldman Sachs to working at the World Bank. It was really cool. That's great. So 
You mentioned that Bowdoin wasn't Yale, and so you couldn't just take the Yale model and put it at Bowdoin. What did your portfolios come to look like at Bowdoin? Yeah, there were certain areas we had no expertise. We didn't do timber. I don't know if you remember, if you went on that timber trip that we did at Yale with Randy, and we all wore Dartmouth t-shirts because we didn't want Yale to know we were doing timber stuff. But like at Bowdoin and Maine, we didn't have any expertise there. It was sort of a asset class where the state was struggling from the demise of the timber industry. So we didn't do timber. No passive investing, all active and believing in active management. And if you look back on the attribution of our outperformance over the years, it's all manager selection. And I think asset allocation is important, but as like even today, asset allocation gets blurry. You have privates and public funds and publics and private funds. And I think one of the things that I did was I hired nimble managers who could and who were really smart. The first year I didn't make many changes, but then the second year I started doing research. And I was just telling someone this, we had no venture capital at Bowdoin when I got there. Zero. And actually, when I got there the first day, I opened this desk drawer and there was a note and it said, would Bowdoin like an allocation to Greylock and Kleiner Perkins? And someone wrote, no, a college has no business in that asset class. So we had nothing. And actually, I started July 17th, 2000 was my first day at Bowdoin. And if you remember, the dot-com bubble was just starting to collapse. So I walked into like the worst time to start an endowment. But in some ways, we weren't hurt that much by the dot-com bubble. Cambridge Associates posts a thing of fundraising of all the private funds that are out fundraising. And on one side, they have a thing that says whether you can get into it. It will say very likely, likely impossible. So, of course, I took all the impossible ones (laughs) and I started going to Silicon Valley and making appointments. And Bowdoin, people said Bowdoin. They thought we were in the North Pole because we have a polar bear as a mascot. No one had ever built the brand of Bowdoin as an investor. And I think that's really crucial to build the brand, to tell the story of the institution. You know, we were need blind, raising money for financial aid, doing all this amazing work. And no one had ever met anyone from Bowdoin. And so I spent a lot of time building networks. And I think that is one of the things that really helped Bowdoin. And as you know, it's this closed system where you have to get into the top tier managers. And so what I really focused on was building relationships with managers. And then with Bowdoin, we did a core satellite portfolio. So we did a core sort of sleep at night in each asset class. And then around that put managers. I sometimes told my interns it was like baking a cake. So you had the S&P 500 as the flour, and then you put stuff around and you might add some really amazing spice which could be a really volatile hedge fund. But as long as you have a diversified portfolio and you think about how it's structured, I think that you'll have an advantage in outperforming. So I'd love to ask about those two features. So the first is building this network of top-tier venture capitalists. How accessible is that today compared to 20 years ago when you started doing it? First of all, the industry has changed dramatically. The length of time till you get all your money back is much longer. They hold publics longer. There's a whole secondary market where people, and there's all these new solo VCs, and it's changed a lot. 
I used to go up and down Silicon Valley. I know when I got to Sequoia, they were like, please don't call us again. You know, we're going to give you this little piece and thank you, go away. It turned out to be a great relationship. But I think now, and actually for Rockefeller, I'm doing this as well. There's a whole new generation of venture capitalists. They talk to each other differently. They have different skills. Like for instance, in crypto, a lot of the really talented crypto investors grew up gaming. And then there's people that have come out of things like Stripe, or they have come out of companies where they have a differentiated skill set than the VCs of old. So one of the things I did at Bowdoin in the hedge fund was start an emerging managers fund where we we didn't take economics, but we would usually get capacity rights, maybe a lower fee, like all that. So I think for venture, I'm doing that now. I'm putting a little bit in. I want to learn about the managers what their sourcing is. I think right now in venture capital, the sourcing is really interesting. What's your network? I do think right now the pace is really fast. I was really surprised when the pandemic happened, I thought everything would slow down. No, it's sped up dramatically because no longer do they have to fly around. And right now, I think the pace is sort of ridiculous how fast these term sheets are going around. And a lot of things that I've learned is pattern recognition. I think venture capitalists with real operating experience can be really interesting. No longer is it about financial engineering. It's about real skill. And also it's about identifying areas of disruption and diving deep into them. I think Silicon Valley changed a little bit with Andreessen Horowitz when they came on the block and they developed really into very successful investors. And I think that changed it. But I do think brands like Sequoia, where they have a great culture and Mike Moritz and Doug Leone have done a fantastic job really instilling a culture at Sequoia that is amazing. And I think that it continues to excel. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. So as you try to flesh out a venture portfolio around the sequoias of the world, there are so many of these managers. What have you found to be the distinguishing characteristics about the ones that you want to plant a small seed in? Yeah, I think sourcing is one. I know a lot of firms have started these seed or scout funds where they're investing really early just to sort of throw the spaghetti at the wall and see who's going to come. You saw Y Combinator was a source for that. I also think rational underwriting is important. 
humility. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about risk management because I've been thinking about China and some of the managers that were so overweight in some of the education companies and things like that. You can't really do that in venture capital because it's a long-term commitment. But I would say sourcing and networks are probably the most important and also the domain expertise of the team. And so when you were at Bowdoin and you had Stan as the chairman of the investment committee, you have this particular expertise in macro investing, which is something that a lot of endowments don't participate in. I'm curious what you learned about how to discover which macro managers you want to allocate your capital to. One thing that I told my team here and that I tell students and that we did at Yale on the Yale class, you meet with a lot of managers. And then all of a sudden you realize that all the managers are saying the same thing. They're investing in the same thing. And then sometimes you'll have a manager who has to have his young analyst by him answering the questions that you're answering. I don't want to invest in that. But then you'll hear someone that's really different, that has an amazing view on something and dares to be different. So I think a lot of it is pattern recognition and seeing good talent. Seeing talent is hard to do, but you get better at it. You got to Bowdoin and you're managing, at the time, what was $450 million and it grew to a few billion. How did you think about the size of the pool as a competitive advantage or disadvantage? I think endowments, especially the size of Bowdoin, and I still think like $3 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion is still a competitive size. You can do small investments that make a difference. So I really like the venture capital firms that are raising $250, $350 million. Scale doesn't work in many asset classes. And so the ability to invest small amounts of money, but it will make a big impact on the bottom line is important. Of course, you have disadvantages in that you have, and you have to be very entrepreneurial in a smaller endowment. You have a smaller staff. You have to sort of be nimble and think across asset classes and all that. I think it's very exciting. I once talked to Jane Mandillo and she said running a small endowment is like being a, an entrepreneur because you're doing many things. You also are interacting with the finance department. There's spending. There's all these things that you have to do. But I definitely think smaller size is an advantage. So when you're investing a global portfolio and you're trying to source managers across asset classes around the world with a small team, how do you do that? I have done it by finding a theme. Like I think disruption across industries is really interesting. There's a the theme of fintech. There's this theme of crypto. But I think, A, meeting as many managers as you can in, on your home turf, whether it's going to the Breakers Conference and doing a million meetings or doing that. The other thing is collaboration and sharing. among. Once you get trust with some of your peers, there's sharing. I think usually I would go to China twice a year, London probably four times a year, Latin America probably two or three times a year, Silicon Valley a lot. Now that travel has stopped, we'll see how that goes. But when you did that, you crammed as much as you can into a trip as possible. I always remember one time I was with David McFarlane and we went to London. And so I land in the airport in London. And then we go meeting, 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 meeting. And it's like we had a cup of coffee, I think, during the whole day. So then his assistant had actually scheduled us to go to the theater at like 8 o'clock. So we literally got out of meeting at 730 
we go to the theater and his assistant goes, oh my God, you haven't eaten yet. So I've made a reservation for you in the green room at the intermission. So we go at, to the green room at intermission and it was me and David and Mick Jagger and his daughter and a, <laughs> another woman drinking gin out of a flask. But that's like one of the stories where you're just going meeting, 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 and you don't even eat, but it's amazing. But I think also a lot of times going to conferences and using that as your base and going out from the conferences, like with Sequoia, when they had the Beijing meeting, I did a lot of meetings. And then with our team doing due diligence, meeting with companies sometimes, and like right now we're doing due diligence, we're doing a lot of reference calls on a couple of things. And we're also reaching out to the underlying companies. We're probably going to travel less because Zoom is working. But I do think there's a real value to kicking the tires on the ground. We invested with Nikolai Tangen. He was like in the special forces of Norway. And he had this glass table because he would look at how people's reactions were like the FBI. And you'd always go in there and you'd be nervous about what your reactions were going to tell him about you. But I do think it's important to see body language when you're meeting with a new team, especially. When you look back on these 20 years at Bowdoin and before we'll move on to Rockefeller, what do you see as the biggest drivers of your success? I think partially my background in the liberal arts and art history, and I know it sounds really weird, but in my studio doing a priceless work of art, say I have a Rauschenberg transfer drawing, I'm going to repair a tear on it, or I'm going to take a stain out of it. I do so much work beforehand because this is a one-of-a-kind piece of work. I have to do testing under the microscope, this and that and this, and then I come up with a plan. And I also come up with a plan if something happens, how I'm going to save myself. And I think in investing, you do lots of due diligence up front. And then you also have a plan. And I feel like I can take that over, you know, right brain, left brain. I feel like what I learned in conservation is absolutely critical in how I think about investments. And the other thing I think is knowing risk management, but also being able to take risk I always remember like in big drawdowns, like in March after uh, the COVID was starting to happen, the March drawdown, you want to make sure your manager is sitting back up on their chair and looking at their screen rather than under their desk. And so I'm always monitoring risk, but also taking risk. And I think I take educated risks in investing. So you had family roots in Bowdoin, had education in Bowdoin, you spend all this time in Bowdoin. And after 20 years with some of the best results in the industry, you decide to take on another challenge. So I'd love to hear a little bit of what your thought process was. Yeah. So at Bowdoin, I had contracts that were multi-year. I left the portfolio in amazing shape. I gave them six-month notice, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something a little different. I'm on a couple of corporate boards and then I've been volunteering a lot for things like Girls Who Invest. I am a mentor for a young woman in Bangladesh for University of Asian Women. So I have a lot of outside interests. And I wanted to sort of shake it up. And you can get complacent. I think one of the wonderful Bowdoin alums who I love is John Studinsky. And he said, you need occasionally to be repotted. And it was time for me to be repotted. So now you step into an established pool with an existing portfolio, what are the first steps you think of taking? Amy Falls did a fantastic job here. I mean, she was amazing. She's put together an amazing team. 
as I said, the institution is very different. I was trying to think today about who our benchmarks would be because we only have 35 students, no tuition, not a lot of gifts, a completely different risk profile. So it's not really like a university portfolio. The portfolio is high quality. I think there's things that could be better. I can use my networks to get access to things that Rockefeller didn't have before. The first six months, I'm in a listening mode. I want to meet with the board. I'm meeting with the investment committee, which is amazing. Scott Besant is the chair, and he's amazing. And then Bill Ford is the chair of the trustees. So lots of amazing knowledge on investments in this place. And Rick Lifton, who's the president, is amazing. I read the book about CRISPR before I came because I thought I'd need to know a little bit about what they do over there. It's really exciting. How do you think about a portfolio of managers that you built over 20 years at Bowdoin? It's kind of your portfolio. Oh, my babies. I know. I know. It's hard because I felt like I know them all so well. One of the things David taught me, and Charlie Ellis taught me this too, is good rebalancing. So when a couple of managers, they were having their totally worst time and everybody's redeeming and I put money in. And actually, if I look back, those were really good things. But I had built great networks with managers. And I have to say the honesty and integrity of the Bowdoin managers in the portfolio is amazing. Yeah, it's my babies. I'm going to leave them behind, but I'm sure they're going to do well. Well, how do you think about putting that imprint into Rockefeller? I'm trying to learn the portfolio construction. I think it's different from when I was at Bowdoin. The market has changed. Also, you see venture capital is changing. I've never seen funds come back to market so fast in my whole career. And so you're always doing these re-ups where before you had a lot of time to do the due diligence and think about it. So I think I'll bring some of my babies over, but I think it's going to be a lot of new funds as well. As you look around the world now across asset classes, where are the opportunities you're most excited to dive into? I think Europe is interesting and overlooked. And so European equities, I think, are interesting. Everyone's doing fintech, but I think really qualified people in fintech. Biotech is interesting, but again, you have to find the right managers with the domain expertise. I'm doing a lot of work on crypto and trying to understand it. And is it a new asset class or how do we think about that? And then also ESG, even though I think that as endowments, we'll like roll our eyes. It's funny, Jillian Tett used to say ESG was eye roll, sigh and groan. That's what it meant. But now I think it's important. And so I think with the carbon initiatives, for instance, in our macro funds, One of our managers is making good money by trading carbon credits. So that's a really interesting area. But I do think as time goes on, endowments are going to have to be more transparent in their financial statements about what their carbon footprints are. So that's something I'm interested in. How do you think about bringing macro managers in to Rockefeller? Oh, I think it's a good opportunity. I think that global macro has a position in the portfolio. You never hear about CTAs anymore, but I think there are patterns and like in interest rates and FX, especially as the world becomes less global, you know, we're sort of becoming more 
insular. I think there are macro themes that could be really interesting. Also, like commodities are interesting. So you have these supply and demand issues. And also then you have the electric vehicles, which copper and all that. And so if you have nimble managers that are working around that, I think it's a great addition to the portfolio. What do you think you see differently in how to manage one of these pools than some of your peers? As a CIO, I'm a little bit different than people that delegate a lot, you know, and have teams and just say, you do it. I love to be involved in the research. I love to work with the team and sit in on the reference calls and all that. I love to know positions in the portfolio. So I'll read the financial statements. So that's one thing. And that's just because I am like a nerd or something. And I read all the financial statements. My sensibility that came from the art history and the liberal arts has me look at things differently. I also think the relationships I develop with managers are really important. I feel like I want a manager where I can call them up and they will answer my question when I want it. I also love managers who give us money back when there's no opportunities and then they call when they're pounding the table. And not a lot of managers do that, you know, because it's all about asset gathering. So when you have that interest in doing the work yourself alongside your team, how do you structure your team? I have a great team at Rockefeller, and I just met with all of them. I'm thinking of like, okay, you focus most of the time on absolute return. Okay, you're going to focus on private equity for a little while. I think shaking it up because I think people get in silos. When I first came to Bowdoin, they had asset class committees. So they had a hedge fund committee, core equity, private equity. And it was interesting because there were overlaps. But they're also like in the long short fund, say they're a short Tesla, whereas in the long fund, they're long Tesla. So you're paying all this money for things that are canceling each other out. So for the team, I love people that are curious, good writers. I think writing is important because we need to convey our information to a board and an investment committee. I think a lot of times you have investment committee members that are really busy and they can't read a giant thing. So getting a succinct executive overview for something. And I also think I want people to say they don't understand something or to ask questions. Also, one of the things I learned about Stan and the amazing committee at Bowdoin, you knew that you had to do your homework. You couldn't walk in there and BS pretty much. And if you didn't know what the answer was, you had to say, I want to get back to you. And that I think is really important for my team to do. If you have a failure, come and talk about it. And what did you learn? Let's do a dissection of it and see how it goes. What are your biggest concerns stepping into a new seat? I always remember when I went to Yale School of Management, I didn't know what a basis point was. But in conservation, I had gone up the learning curve and I was at the top of my field. And all of a sudden, I'm at the bottom and like crawling my way up. It's a whole different community and everything. So I think I was in a really comfortable rut in Bowdoin because I had been there for so long and it was automatic. And so this is exciting for me, but also I want to listen and learn and not change things that don't need to be changed. Okay. All right, Paul, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Yeah, I love Maine. It's like my home. And so I have a garden there, which is really beautiful. I run. I wish I could run more, but yeah, I was just looking in New York or running. So I love that. And then also in my house in Maine, I have a conservation studio where I actually restore damaged things that I find in flea markets and not for anyone else, but just for myself. What's your most important daily habit? 
one of the things that is really important to me is be outside in nature as much as I can. So every morning I usually have a cup of coffee outside. I mean, now that I'm spending more time in New York, I'll have to figure that out. But I think that having some thing of nature, like whether it's a walk first thing in the morning or something like that is important. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? It is hubris undeserved. You know, like someone who has a chip on their shoulder and they shouldn't have a chip on their shoulder. I just can't stand that. And then for my biggest investment pet peeve, I would say it is lack of transparency. What two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? David and Stan obviously have had huge impact. Also, Barry Mills, who was my president for a long time, was amazingly supportive. Women need to be seen in leadership positions and all that. And, you know, Barry believed in me and he gave me a leadership position. He sort of made me senior vice president. I went up there. So he was very influential. So it sounds like it's all men, but in my professional career, it sort of has been men because that's been the environment. So what's been the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? The biggest mistake is not reading legal documents, but the other one is sort of thinking I can give a manager where I have a really bad feeling and something is happening or a person left one more chance and re-up to their next fund thinking I'll squeeze out the best thing and that's never a good idea. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Yeah, my parents were... I don't want to say simple, but I think authenticity is what I drew in from them. They were who they were. They were very comfortable with who they were. And that's something that I learned to treasure, authenticity. And I look for people and managers who have that characteristic, the authenticity that they're not trying to be someone that they're not. All right, Paul, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? It would be to slow down a little bit. I am really passionate. I'm really fast. I think fast and all that. And sometimes you just need to slow down and smell the roses. And I think that's what I should have learned, taking a little more time and breaks. I love my daughter and we have had a lot of great times. Our best thing was going on a hiking trip in Iceland when she graduated from college. And I'm like, why didn't I do this before? Why am I doing this You know, when she's 18? Why haven't we done this before? So spending time with family and also taking a pause sometimes. Well, Paula, really excited to see what you're going to do at Rockefeller over the next 10 or 20 years. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. An important disclaimer from Janice Henderson Group, PLC. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value.